The Vincast, Australia's premier podcast about wine, wine culture and wine people, is dedicated to finding you the most interesting wine people and stories for your listening pleasure. And the supporter of the podcast, Different Drop, is similarly dedicated to finding the most interesting and innovative wines produced in Australia. They work with a range of very small, artisanal, often sustainable winemakers from around Australia in lots of different regions, covering lots of different grape varieties. And they package them up in a fantastic way online uh, so that it makes it easier for you to select the wines you love or to even be recommended. Uh, You can actually buy special packs based on variety or based on producer. Uh, and they will ship it to you anywhere in Australia. And usually it only takes a couple of days. The pricing is very competitive, but more important than that, you're going to find wines on the website that aren't available in a lot of the big chain retail stores. So if you go to differentdrop.com, you will find a huge range of wines, uh, including wines from today's guest. And uh, if you put in the special code VINCASTVINO at purchase for your first order over $100, the boys at Different Drop will give you $25 off. How can you uh, complain about that? So thank you very much, Different Drop, for your support of the podcast, and thank you guys for listening to another episode. Episode 59 of the Vincast, I chat with Gary Mills, the man behind Jamsheed Wines, responsible for producing some of the most fantastic single vineyard wines in Victoria. I've also got a question for you at the end of the episode, so stay tuned. Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Kersbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino, and as always, it's great to have you on board for another week. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Brad Weir. Uh, certainly, there seemed to be a lot of buzz around uh, the episode, particularly the picture that I, uh, I actually took from the uh, Amato Vino website and put onto uh, Instagram, which then went through to Facebook. Lots of comments about uh, how, uh, how spunky... Uh, if that's the right word, that uh, Brad was looking. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it was fantastic to have him on, and I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you have gone out and bought some Amato Vino, which, of course, you can do at Different Drop, our uh, supporter. Um, I don't know if, uh, if you've actually seen it or not, but uh, I've I posted my first video tasting on uh, YouTube uh, on the Intrepid Wino channel. I uh, opened up a bottle of uh, wine from my cellar. It was the Muraduck Pinot Noir 2003 under screw cap, um, and it was, it was fun to sort of try something a bit different. I'm going to do some more as well. Um, but it was also fantastic to have actually Kate McIntyre, MW, uh, whose family, of course, uh, established Mura Duck and she's the winemaker there now comment on the video and uh, and it was really uh, great to hear from her and I hope to, to have her on the podcast at some point as well because she's a, a, a veritable wealth of knowledge about wine um, of course 
upcoming the 27th of july is the first ever live streaming wine tasting for intrepid wino uh, it is let's taste grenache um, my friend james dawson uh, certified sommelier who actually is in sydney as we speak waiting the results of uh, the advanced uh, exams uh, we're going to be tasting six uh, australian grenache uh, three from uh, barossa two from mclaren vale and one from the Adelaide Hills, uh, and so that's going to be live. You can actually, if you want to, you can. Uh, the, the, if you go to the website intrepidwine.com, there's a post on the top of the page about what wines we're going to taste. But you can actually go to differentdrop.com, and if you put in "let's taste Grenache," um, you'll find the the pack reader to feed to order. And make sure you're using the code Intrepid Grenache when you make purchase, and you'll actually get a ten percent discount on that, which is a fantastic way for you to uh, have the wines in front of you. Invite some friends together, and everyone can taste along with us and ask questions and make comments. Uh, it's something new that I'm going to try um, in the future. I'm, I'm already talking to a few winemakers about uh, coming on, which is going to be fantastic. So it gives you the opportunity to actually ask the winemaker some questions. Uh, so make sure you head to YouTube, go to Intrepid Wino channel, uh, and you will find um, the, the the live streaming video ready to go on the 27th at 6 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. Now, uh, for this week, I have a guest that I've actually wanted to have on for a long, long time. Um, he's a, a good friend uh, and, and someone I really admire. And we have a, quite a lot in common, in fact. Um, for example, the, the Japanese history, um, the literature history, uh, and also I love his wines. Jamsheed wines are fantastic. So Gary Mills um, is uh, one of the most exciting um, small producers in Victoria. Really has a, a big following, uh, particularly here in Melbourne. Uh, and uh, the wines just keep getting better and better. Uh, and so I hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, I, I know I did. Uh, if you did, make sure that you let myself and Gary know. I will see you on the other side. Gary, we uh, we finally got there after a few hiccups. We've um, we're, we're sitting down and uh, we're talking Vincast. Thank you very much for making some time to be on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Great to be here. And um, I always start my podcast, uh, as you might be aware, I by think. asking, <laughs> what was the first interaction with wine that kind of set you on the path? Uh, I don't know. I, I'm not too sure it was only one particular interaction with wine. I mean, I'd ever grew up around wine. Like my parents, I mean, I grew up around cask wine and swan gold and brandy and dries in the afternoon. So mm. it wasn't really anything that dramatic in that sense. But I, I do remember the first time I actually got engaged by wine as more than something you just get pissed on when you're a university student was working in a a wine bar gastro pub in london when i was there in oh okay so you were doing 94. the usual rite of passage australian backpacking when i tried I was, I was on my way to tour around the world yeah I, I sort of went through south africa and then wound up in london and ran out of money so i got south a job africa. Oh, yeah i went through africa and cool. zimbabwe and um had a great time cost a lot more yeah. than i expected well actually my it was more like my. I found of, that too. South America was a lot more than than like more you know developed countries. No, not, that's not, not quite well, right. But yeah, like Brazil and Argentina yeah, and Chile seemed so much more expensive. Well, you probably like me. You do like a drink, so most of money <laughs> goes on booze. So yeah. yeah, so that's where it all ended up. And so basically, I woke up one morning in London, ran out of money, and thought I'd better get a job. So uh, I got a job as a cocktail barman uh, in this gastro pub in Walton Street in London, behind Harrods in Knightsbridge. Yeah. And they had an extraordinary cellar. They, I was sort of the cocktail barman, but they kept an, a great cellar of um, really good Bordeaux, a lot of very good Loire. A lot, you know, our, our house champagne was um, was Charles Hardsick, 
mm. at the time. So mm. I got exposed then to a lot of wine. I was like, oh, this stuff's all right. And I still remember, actually, probably the most memorable occasion I remember was um, we had a, a huge winter downfall and the cellar flooded. Oh, um, wow. And the cellar was full of a lot of good first growth, second growth, third growth, and all the labels peeled off and floated away. So I had to do the stock take. So I basically ended up back at my horrible little bedsit in London with my girlfriend with about four dozen random mixed cases of for anything from first to fifth growth Bordeaux. Yeah. And we had no idea what they were. So yeah. the only ones we could tell were those that had the cork. Yeah, yeah. So they weren't sellable. you can't see so that just, until you take the cork out. Exactly. So we just <laughs> they were written off, so we got to take them home. Nice. And we just sat around going, oh, this one's all right. What's this one? Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Yeah, that one's pretty good. So, <laughs> so that was a pretty good crash course in Bordeaux just that couple of weeks. So, so um, did, did, what point did you kind of think that that was something you might want to do for work? Or what Like, what did you uh, studied and, and what was your career well, path came, heading towards? Came through a pretty circuitous route to wine. Um, I graduated high school and then went straight in to do a literature degree at Curtin University in WA. Right, okay. Uh, Any particular area of literature or yeah, sci-fi. You know, time period? Sci-fi. Uh, yeah, I, I was focusing on short story work and sci-fi. Okay. Two different streams, but um, and Japanese literature as well. I oh, really? Keen interest in Japanese. Well, I speak Japanese, so... Sure, okay. So I had an interest in Japanese. So were you, you were reading it in, in the Japanese characters and everything? No, no. It was never that extensive. Not at that time. Right, okay. Um, I, I graduated... So I'm not, I'm not sure school. how long it would take you to, to learn reading to read. and reading from and writing right is very, to left very different. and then from yeah. up, up you know, top of the page, bottom of the page. <laughs> well, people people who know what and who have studied Japanese understand that speaking Japanese and reading and writing Japanese are two very very different things. You I can would hold a conversation, but Absolutely. reading and writing are virtually illiterate. Mm. You get better at it, but yeah, never really got to that speed. Rocket read or write. So I don't, no, think, I don't think speaking is, is actually that complicated. No, it's not, but it's, no. it's it's pretty scary when you're looking at the, the characters. Yeah, you learn. There's hiragana and katakana, which I can read, but not the kanji. And if you you want to read poetry and books, you got to read kanji, which I don't. So. Mm. No, I was just more interested in in the fascination with it. Um, you know, just with the culture and the the um, you know the samurai, the the whole sort of era that they had. You know, the Edo period and that, and and especially Mishima Yukio, you know, his tetralogy, right, which was fascinating with me, fascinated me. So that's what I sort of concentrated on. But also, you know, things like. Um, uh, I mean, my favourite writer um, is, you know, short story guys, and oh, I was trying to think, God, I've got a suddenly mental block. Um, Raymond, Raymond Carver, sorry, that's what I'm trying to think of. Ray Carver, the short story. Oh, um, yeah, okay. Pro, yeah. You know, he's a wonderful short story writer. Mm. But look, it was more, you know, look, those four years of university for me were really just a crash course in drinking games. You know, we sort of, <laughs> I, I'm, I was never really that serious. I was a bit of a lost soul. Like I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Yeah. That seemed like a good thing to do at the time. Well, I have to tell you that I, I um, majored in English literature and advanced Japanese at Melbourne Uni. Oh, there you go. And, and I had exactly the same thing. I was yeah. like, finished and went, well, I've enjoyed studying that stuff, <laughs> but what can I actually do with that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Go to Japan like I did. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I'm, I actually, while I was doing that, I was actually... One thing I wanted to do was become a professional baseball player. So really, yeah, I was playing That's pretty high I mean, level. Obviously, baseball is pretty big in Japan. Yeah, baseball's huge. Well, that was another um, part of going to Japan as well. But you know, I was just—I mean, when I was a kid, I was playing some really high level baseball. And okay, so do you have a position? Yeah, I pitch. I mean, I still play. I still okay. play for the Melbourne University team. So. Right. Okay. Um, and I love it. I still—you know—I'm slightly. If you ask my wife. She deplores the game, and she no. just says I'm obsessed by it. I love so. baseball. It's such oh, a noble yeah. game. Well, that's why I was quite happy when you know today I actually got to watch the All Star Game. So far out, it was great. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I mean, I, I have a great fascination both watching and playing and stuff. So, yeah. but I never made it. You know, I, I was never that good enough to play professionally, and I blew my arm out anyway. 
really. Um, so I then ended up in Japan as an English speaking, as an English teacher, it's like the second, yeah. teaching English as a second language. Sure. Uh, lived in a remote part of Japan, that's where I learned to speak Japanese quite well. Uh, came back from that and then was back in Australia for a while, went to London, worked in bars and, you know, lived in London for a fair while and then came back from that, ended up in Cairns as a Japanese-speaking tour guide in the rainforest and in the reef. A lot of Japanese tourism in, in Queensland. That was 96, so 95, 96, when the boom, just before the bubble economy sort of burst, yep. we were making some really good serious Which is when money. I was in Japan. Yeah, right. Yeah. So that's when the money was good. Yeah. And good um, money is teaching English then too. So. Yeah, that, yeah, of course. But the problem was that, the, you know, the arse fell out of that market pretty dramatically. So there was one day I just turned around and and we went from earning a lot of money every week to not much. And it, it's funny how not much fun it was after that. Yeah. it's amazing. It, and it felt awful because I was, I was actually getting bored of going out to the Barrier Reef every day. Yeah. And going to the rainforest and all that's a terrible state of affairs. You never yeah. want to be bored of doing this. So. Yeah. So I, I literally called up my dad and was said, you know, look, I'm, I want to come back. It was summer. I was like, I want to come back. And he was living in Margaret River at the time. We're yelling up. And I said, look, I just want to come back. I want to take a summer off, think about what I want to do. Can you get me a job? You know, and who's got any work down there? Mm. He's like, oh, yeah, what's his name down the road? He's got a vineyard. So get your job down there. So that was um, Amberley Estate, which was... So are you originally from... Uh, yeah, I grew up in Perth. Well, no, I grew up in Perth. Perth, so okay. I went to um, high school in Perth. And then my dad, uh, my mother died when I was quite young. So right. uh, he's remarried and he moved down to yelling up down to the southwest. Yeah, uh, which I only visited for the first time recently. Yeah, I've heard a couple of your Sea Vintners podcasts and Andrew yeah. Hoadley and stuff. They're great. It's a beautiful area. And look, I'd, I'd probably, you know... It's had, so far had, out of the way. It's a long way away, yeah. And and circumstances, if they'd been different, I probably would have ended up there. But... Right. Um, I, I, I did end up there, I guess, in a way, and, and I sort of started there. I was working in vineyards. I didn't think it was anything more than a part-time job and a, you know, and, and something you do just to fill the gap while you go swimming and surfing. Right. Know, which is why you're down in my career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why, why a lot of backpackers go down there. Yeah, and the whole industry is set up for you. You know, you get like an hour and a half off for lunch and two hours if the swell was up, and, yeah. you know, because everyone would go surfing. And it's not a bad so lifestyle. Pretty, oh, it's amazing. It's a beautiful place. I still have, you know, my heart still is there, you know, and I go back there a lot to visit my dad and I love going back. Sure. And um, so, and, and working at Amberley Estate, was that was that an, an initial kind of introduction to 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 how wine could be a, a career path for you? No, uh, not really. It's still, I mean, I, you know, still, it's still just a job. It was a job, job. Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed the lifestyle, you know, and it was a great um, camaraderie during vintage, you know, that whole. And I was in the vineyard to begin with, so it was mainly vineyard work. Mm. Um, I never, I kind of bullshitted my way into getting to Cal- not to get into California, but. Um, I'd only done sort of a couple of, like a year in the vineyard, and then a Kiwi mate of mine was, I, I broke up with my girlfriend at the same time, and sort of, um, and he said, well, why don't you come to California with me? We're, we're all going to California to do vintage. And I was like, but I don't know how to work in a way. And he's like, ah, oh, it's all right, you don't need to know much, you know? And he said, just lie on your CV. <laughs> so, so I sent out, um, there was a company called the California Agricultural Exchange Program, and so I just presented my CV to them, not expecting to get a job really anywhere. And they came back and were like, um, we've actually got this really prestigious winery who's interested in hiring you, Ridge Vineyards in California. And I was what? Like, oh, why do they want me? And it's going, oh, apparently you can speak Japanese. Is that correct? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, well, we need someone. They've just been like in, in I think, turn of the decade, like in the ni- late 80s, or early 90s, they've been bought by a Japanese pharmaceutical company. Yeah. Otsuka Pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And they needed someone who could speak Japanese. Yeah. Or they, they preferred to have someone who could speak Japanese. And so I wound just up just to know what, what they were saying to each other. Well, they had a couple oh, of research scientists and sales guys who come over a lot, and they'd have guests there, so they thought it could be advantageous and helpful if I could speak Japanese. And, sure. Um, 
Like little did I know that I actually had to learn Spanish working in California. True. The, like I mean, that was yeah. my experience as well. Like when I was visiting wineries in yeah. uh, in California, there were a lot of Mexican, Latino. yeah, yeah, which was great. Mi- America, migrants and yeah. Well, these guys. I mean, Rich had this crew of. And there was like 20, 20 guys who worked there from four or five different families and they'd all swum the Rio Grande to get there. And when they had the, um, what do they call it? The, um, when they had normalized? Well, they had the, what are they, not the embargo, what do they call it? When they just basically... Um, oh, they like they basically say, okay, everyone is in here. Yeah, everyone's here now. now camera, there's some too. Yeah, yeah. Brain's not working at the moment. But yeah, they, these guys were there for that. So they've just, they're now national nationalized mm-hmm. citizens. So they've been there forever, you know. So it did my head in having to speak. Yep. Japanese to Spanish to English to you know, it was quite. It was quite. I had interesting a few. For I had day. a few visits like that when I was when I was traveling through Europe in particular. Like yeah. someone would be working there. They were from Germany, but it was in Priorat, and the yeah. owner of the winery was French, and mm. and it's then a, we were sort of speaking English. It was, it was really. It's one of the great things about the industry, isn't it? It's just a multicultural. It's, it breaks yeah. down multicultural. It breaks down boundaries. You know, there's no. But even no when I even, so. even when I visit wineries and. My my host didn't speak English, because yeah. um, you speak wine. Yeah, you kind of point. You say the term, and a lot of the time the term Spanish, is Italian, the same. French. It's exactly remontado, yeah. remontage, remontado. You know, yeah, it's all, yeah, yeah. You know, I, often I'd have I, I, often the ones that I would um, who could speak English would say, oh, "I'm really sorry for my English." Oh, how do you say this? And I say, yeah. "That's how we say it in English." So it's exactly, exactly the same. What used to really do my head in though is when we'd get work orders that were in Spanish. They'd measure everything out in U.S. Imperial, but most of the equipment was done in metric because it was all European equipment. Yeah. And they so you'd have to convert from metric to imperial parts per million to milligrams per liter, but then to the gallons, and then from Spanish to Japanese to English. And you know, I mean, that was the most tiring thing for the first couple of months. It yeah, just of course. Did my head in, but you know, I went for five weeks and stayed for two and a half years. Far out. Um, came back once in between to the vintage in Kunawara, and then went back and sort of had designs to stay there forever so you were based at Montebello or did you end up spending quite a bit of time up at Lytton Springs I love going up to Lytton Springs I mean it was the days when Lytton before the the, what is now the the new straw bale construction Lytton Springs so this was the old original site sure and I would go up there you know a lot of times to look at the vineyards and the old sites and all the um, Zinfandel all the Zinja and all the old I mean I was there one thing we started when I was there was this uh, Rhone program so we would isolate Syrah vines and Grenache vines and Mavere vines from within the old Lytton Springs and Guysville properties mm. and bring them down and separate them and ferment them separately at Montebello. Right. Yeah. Uh, they had this thing called the ATP program, um, advanced tasting program, where they would make, you know, old, you know, so the first Syrah I ever got to work with was a 120 year old Syrah from the Lytton Springs vineyard. Far out. That's Amazing awesome. stuff. Incredible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, you know, you talk about, you know, wines that my, one, of, one of my greatest wine epiphanies was actually tasting. Uh, uh, York Creek, which is sort of in the mountains above Napa Valley, that divide yeah. the Sonoma and Napa Valley, yeah. um, Dry Creek Valley, on the uh, on the western side. Yeah, really high up, really cool. Mm. Um, and there was one barrel that I tasted, and, and it blew my mind. And it was a it was a very high percentage whole bunch Petit Syrah, so yeah. Durif, as what we know Durif, as Durif, yeah, you know? Yeah. And I remember this wine just sort of blew me away. It was so different from everything else they make. So you know, even even Ridge, you know, by by American standards, was quite light and. Um, very Euro styled, I guess, in a way, but still, uh, these are very, very strong tannic wines, and mm-hmm. and Durif being a quite a tannic wine in itself. The the difference between this one that was as whole bunches and was so carb, you know, just carbonic maceration and perfumed and light in its feet, it, it kind of I remember, I still remember it what it tasted like to this day. You know, mm-hmm. it sort of blew my mind. So. 
Mm. And what was um, like the vintage uh, atmosphere like um, at Ridge? Oh, was, beautiful. Yeah. Such a great community, you know, because you're quite isolated. You're 800 metres above sea level. Mm-hmm. It's, a beauty, um, it's an amazing drive. It's very windy. Though. Oh, it's, yeah, it's torturous. You don't want to do that after a good four days <laughs> assemblies tasting. Getting all, Going up's one thing, but coming down is pretty treacherous. But if you're not sick, you're just going over the edge. Exactly. And you break, you go through brakes in your car. You, know, yeah. you go through a set of brakes every six months. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, it, was, it felt like a real family. And it really was. It was a family up there. They, You know, it was such a welcoming place. Paul Draper is still to this day, he's my guru. You know, he's he is so generous with his time and his knowledge and his and his you know everything and his and his wines as well man i drank some amazing wines here mm-hmm. you know we, i drank the first ever bottled montebello 68 wow because he had this what great was the, what was the vintage that was included in the the paris 74 or something i think it was 70s or 73 74 yeah something like that so i think that was 70 some of the 72 some 70 i think it was a 74 montebello mm. um i never got to taste that but you know paul the rich had this great thing and you know so just an example of how generous the man is every vintage party you'd have you would taste the decade decades prior wines for oh, the party. Okay. So I was there for 98, years, 97. Years, 30 years, yeah. yeah. So in 97 we drank 87, 77. There's no 67, you know, and, the, and of everything, you know, and then 98 we ended up drinking a 90. He pulled one of the last remaining bottles of 98, of uh, 68 Montebello out. We tried okay. that. Incredible. Still full of life and, yeah. you know, these are very, very long-lived wines. Sure. So yeah, great, great experience. And so you ended up spending two and a half years there? Right about, so yeah, sort of all up about two and a half years coming back and forth, so... Um, and, and then you decided to move back to Australia? No, I went up to Oregon. Uh, spent about eight months working on black in Oregon. Okay. Was there for September 11th. On the great... On oh, black. Uh, illegally. With a, oh, okay. Illeg- on tourist visa. Right, okay. So, in Willamette Valley? In Willamette, yeah. A place called uh, Willakenzie. Yep, I know yeah, it. Yeah, great winery. Amazing, amazing Pinot. Amazing Pinot. Amazing winery. You know, gravity filled, gravity fed four level winery in the cut in the side of a mountain. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was a great experience. And you know, seeing some Oregon... And I love the whole of Oregon I love that experience I love Portland Portland's amazing I've always said actually it's probably different now but I've been saying for a long time if I had to pull up stakes and start all over again I'd consider doing it in Oregon just so you could be close to Portland well that's the the beauty of it is that you're less you're like an hour Hmm. hour and a half at most into the Willamette Valley there's so much great wine there and that's one of the great attractions about me being in the Yarra Valley it's the same thing that was really was a conscious decision to do that when I got back to the Melbourne and do the Yarra And, and, and so what brought you back to Australia eventually? Uh, visa. Well, September 11 hit. Right. Um, it wasn't a fun time to be there. No. Um, and especially working illegally. Mm. So it was and you know visa was running out, and I was I didn't want to come under the scrutiny. I, I probably would have been alright, but you know we're all a bit fearful, and it wasn't a great time to be in the states. So mm. uh, I came back and just sort of I took a job uh, in Yarra Valley as a night shift supervisor for a what, big winery. What brought you to Victoria? Uh, the job really I got okay. offered the, I got the job when I was away right um, came back for it uh, my dad's originally from Victoria he's born in Kew um, oh yeah so I've got family school. here yeah right, there you go well, we've got a connection there and um, still have family here so uh, I just came back it was really for the job I mean I knew I love Melbourne just as a city mm. you know having grown up in Perth we used to love coming to Melbourne Perth is such an isolated place that mm. you, you pretty much we, I spent the first 20 years of my life devising a plan to get the hell out of there you know? sure. and a lot of that involved coming out of uh, Melbourne to see gigs and I was right you know I was big into the music scene so we'd come over here and see gigs people who never came to Perth yeah so, so I had what, an what were some of the, uh, the the big gigs for you in, in those early years oh Stooges you know just sort of wow. a lot of punk gigs you know coming and seeing um, what is now um, the pizza joint down on um, down on Brunswick Street there 
It used to be the old punky. Oh, right. Okay. What's it called? It's now that $2 pizza joint down on... Um, oh, near the corner of um, of Johnson Street. Now. No, yeah, further down. It's... Um, Everyone up got my memories to shit out like things like this. <laughs> destroyed it with too much drinking and drugs. Um, but yeah, like there was a good old pug, you know, punk gig down there, and we come over and to see things at the festering hall and yeah, yeah, you know, and anything. So we're right into you know this is eighty. I grew up in the sort of area of the the post punk, so there's a lot of sure. you know touring, you know, post punk bands and yeah, stuff. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, anything. We just drive over, take a whole lot of uh uppers and drive across the Nullarbor and then drive back over the weekend so, holy shit yeah good fun like that I can't, like it doesn't even the, the amount of time it's just a boredom I could never do that oh, it's pretty intense yeah you learn to love the white space <laughs> yeah but that's an isolation so we try to get out of there as quick as we could and so I got back to Melbourne and and you know pretty much at the same time you know met and fell in love with my wife who's now my wife and, yeah uh fell in love with Sarah from Victoria too at the same time you know and what were some of the early interactions with with Victoria and Sarah that kind of Yarra Yarra yeah um, yeah a lot of that a lot of Bortleys you know I remember sure. seeing a lot of whole bunch wines in you know I, I was sort of you know very early on I was into the whole sort of stem inclusion mm. way of making wines you know mm. they were the wines I liked to drink so mm. sort of was always fascinated by them um, yeah a lot of you know, it, I remember seeing some good old Yarra Yering wines and just going, well, these are really, these are very unique and very different to the other stuff I'm tasting. And, yeah. Um, yeah, and then came over and sort of, at the time, you know, in, in the early, you know, early 2000s and, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, there wasn't a lot of good Syrah, what I thought was good Syrah being made, you know. The Bortleys definitely were making some really interesting stuff, you know, mm-hmm. they were exploring that sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was more, it, it's funny, I mean, I had more affinity and more interest in the wines already at that stage that were coming from overseas, you know. Sure. So the... Was that was that a, a, another reason it was, like, good to be living in Melbourne because yeah. it was a little bit more dynamic as far as imported wines? Well, I, de- I definitely sort of, I, I remember coming back, having having spent time in California where you had San Francisco as your, pro- as your closest city and then spending time in Orlando where you had Portland, it was kind of like I, I was really hesitant to move out to a remote area. I was, I was really enjoying that sort of those areas that you could get close to. San Francisco and Portland is still somewhat parochial. Well, I lived in Santa Cruz in California, so that was an hour, an hour and a half Best away. burger I've ever had was in Santa Cruz. Yeah, Santa Cruz is an awesome town. Oh, so, man. Yeah. But it's just that the idea of being within an hour, an hour and a half of a big city, I, I still sort of like to keep. I'm a city kid at heart, you know, city sure. rat, so I love to keep sure, us. Sure. I live in the city now, yeah. you know, so. Yeah. Um, it was always fun to sort of get in there and do that. So that, that was a, a question. But, you know, I remember one of the striking things, and, you know, again, one of my experiences with wine is um, one of my best friends in California when I was working there is now Bill Downey's wife, Rachel Niederbar, and she was working for Kermit Lynch at yeah. the time. So hanging out with her in, in San Francisco and being exposed to the wonderful, getting introduced and drinking the wonderful wines that Kermit Lynch brings in really open my eyes up to the difference, you know. Mm-hmm. What, how good wine could be, and the the eccentricities of you know these kooky wines from all over the place. And yeah. So that was. I mean, his books are amazing. Oh, it's stunning. I mean, you never find a, you know, it's just the endless depth of, of experience and terroir in there. You know, I mean, you could yeah. just you could lose yourself in it and never drink anything else again. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I came back here and sort of with that in with those not not those sort of wines in mind, but the idea when I first started making wine. I mean, I'm not a trained winemaker. You know, by any stretch. So you're a winemaker by osmosis. Yeah, absolutely by trade. And you know, my more my training's been done with my palate and what I enjoy drinking. And so I've continued to do that. And when I started making wine, I just went, okay, well, what do I like to drink? You know, and these are the wines I like to drink. So and I looked at them, and a lot of them were Cru Beaujolais, you know, obviously Northern Rhone, 
a lot of the last stuff was like, well, what have they all got in common? There's a lot of stem, you know? Mm. So a lot of that carbonic maceration effect. And, and the first ones I tried making weren't like that, you know? I was still finding vineyards and finding my feet, I mean, not knowing what to do. And, and eventually I sort of started to increase the load of the amount of stem inclusion to the wines, you know, and find, and now I'm sort of, it's more like I'm attracted to the vineyards that do take the stem inclusion, you know, that like 100% whole bunch and high percentages of whole bunch. So were these wines that you were making for someone else or for you? I started out making contract wines. I've, I've used to make a lot of contract wine and right. gradually on the side, I'd just sort of, you know, through metiage or purchasing little bits of fruit, I'd, I would make uh, my wines on the side, you know. So I, I started out uh, running and making the Bianchet wines, you know, the old yeah, Bianchet yeah. winery. Yeah. Is that, that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, still does. No, it still exists. Some guy bought it. It's still called the... Bianchet, I think. It's on the corner of, on Victoria Road, Colstream West Road. Right, okay. Sort of close to Mount Mary. Yeah, but yeah, you know, okay. they when I got there, that that was a thirty-five-year-old vineyard. So there was thirty-five-year-old Syrah, Pinot, Gewurztraminer there. So you know, the first wow. one I ever brought out was wines, you know, Syrah and Gewurztraminer sourced from a thirty-five-year-old vineyard. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that sort of fell in a heap, and you know, I, I started out, you know, I was pretty stubborn, I guess, or adventurous, and I just started a contract winemaking company from nowhere. Right, you know, just making wines in the back of a shed, and yeah, leased the Bianchet winery, and then moved out to a smaller winery in Sylvan. Um, at least that and then uh, ended up helping build the winery that Mac Forbes is now in in, uh, Wurri, uh, in Hillsville on the Wurriella border there yeah yeah and the Grosdale mm. and was there for seven years so right, yeah so. And, and expanded quite dramatically so it sort of you know and made a lot of wine for other people then made less and less and gradually just increased the amount of wine to make for myself to now it's pretty much you know it's gone from 5% of my wine to 95% other people's to the other way around now mm-hmm. so, yeah so, um, how did you kind of find these fruit sources? Like you started in Yarra Valley and then you started to find stuff in other regions hmm. as well? Yeah, it also came serendipitously and like or I remember... Did, they, did it find you? Yeah, a lot of the times it found me, generally. I mean, okay. um, for example, I'd, you know, I, was, I was making contract when I got a call from these guys in the city, a bunch of um, uh, lawyers and finance guys in the city and they were like, look, we've got this vineyard in, is it Armstrong? Well, uh, Elmhurst or some out in the Pyrenees Highway, they're a small town anyway. They're like, we've got this vineyard, it's seven years old, we've never got any fruit off it because we keep running out of water. We'd like you to make some wine for us, but we know this guy in Grampians who's going to sell us some fruit. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's fine. I was like, well, I, I thought to myself, I'd better go out and have a look at this vineyard and see what it's like and went out there and that was the old Westgate vineyard. Mm. Spoke to him and he's like, um, so do you, want any, do you want any fruit yourself? You're looking for any fruit yourself? We've got a bit of extra. I was like, yeah, what do you got? And he's going, no, I've got this stuff. He said, but I've also got this older stuff um, around the corner, which turns out to be the Garden Gully Vineyard, mm. which is you know now one of my core Syrahs, and it's a you know we think it's planted sometime around the early 1890s. Yeah, you know, and suddenly this stuff just came up and was like, uh, yeah, I'll take some of that. You know? <laughs> so that was since '05 I started with that. '06 was the first release of it. Yeah, um, and then things just start coming around, like um, Beechworth. Uh, came through connection Rocco Esposito who mm-hmm. used to run Warden's Wines up Project 49 Project 49 whose wine I now make um, with him so uh, that came up that um, the Warner Vineyard there was a bit of available fruit from the Warner Vineyard so he introduced me and then started and isn't, isn't the Warner Vineyard really now one of the vineyards in oh, Australia it's one of the great it's, it's one of, to me it's one of the most single interesting terroirs in Australia sure pure granite high altitude yeah amazing site yeah yeah um, I'm, I feel really fortunate to have access to that fruit, and so I'm now in my fifth year of making, you know, Warner Vineyard. And I make a bit of wine for the owner as well, so mm-hmm. you know, it always keeps the relationships happy. 
as long as I keep making them good wine, I think they're happy. So, <laughs> um, and so, were you? How involved were you with the actual growing of the fruit? Oh, it's difficult. I mean, I'd like to be more involved. I'm trying to get more involved as it evolves. Um, having, you know, I now source fruit from nine different vineyards from five different areas. Yeah. So you can get a bit stretched. I do a lot of driving. I mean, I'm out there all the time looking at the vineyards as much as I can. Yeah. Um, I'm going to try and get out to Great Western to help prune the the Riesling vineyard this year. We need to do a bit of work in there. Yeah. A lot of the times, you know, when, when the fruit's growing well, uh, I mean, one of the reasons that I like these vineyards is because I enjoy the way that they do grow it and the way that it is working and it's working well. I, I'm not going to go tell someone to do something that I don't think, you know, that they may not want to do. You know, it's like it, it, a hundred-year-old vineyard in Garden Gully grows itself. You know, mm-hmm. you just, it's not a place you need to throw excessive sprays on. You know, it's copper sulfur a couple of times a year. It's a nice drive, as long as it doesn't get frosted, which it does every other year. Mm. You, the fruit just looks after itself, you know. It's a 100-year-old vineyard. You don't really have to do a lot to it, you know. Um, you have to do a lot of work in places like Yarra because it's a much more disease pressure in there. Sure. So there's a lot of, you know, it's an open dialogue and it's all about relationships with the growers and how they work. And as long as they're going well, you're going to get good fruit. And But you're, you're getting out and you're, you're picking it as... Well, I'm there. I, I mean, I, I do a lot of travel. I decide on the picking myself. Sure. Um, so I, you know, go and, like come now with the pruning, I'll you know, go out and check how the pruning's going. And then once we get sort of bud burst and then we start with the growing season, I start going out more frequently and even more frequently to the point that, you know, by the time it comes to picking, I'm out there every couple of days just checking and tasting and walking through. And, yeah. You know, I try and, during the growing season, once it comes time to taste, I'll be out there every week just trying to taste and walk through the vineyard and getting to know it. And, yeah. Um, I mean, I'll pick everything on taste, so it's me just going out there and walking and tasting and seeing when it's right to pick. Um, so I, do, the, I do a lot of Ks. Without, without um, that kind of technical education in winemaking, mm. you know, you're not, you're not using uh, sort of numbers to, to make decisions. Oh, I don't it's look all at numbers. I mean, I've, I haven't looked at a pH in wine for a long time, you know, sure. and BOMA is nothing. I mean, if it's, you know, you know, I think this is one of the things, and it's one of the things that Paul Draper instilled in me really, really well, is that he said, you, you can't make wine without knowing the vineyard mm. well he said you know the, the more the, the longer that you make wine from a particular vineyard the better you get to know it and the better the wine's going to be you know I mean he still makes wine from the Montebello I mean when I was there he was 35 vintages into it oh, and he was saying you're still learning every year you know but he knows every pocket of it extremely well so. yeah so it's just a you know it's early days for me I mean I'm well early days I'm now into my sort of 14th harvest of jam sheet but yeah you know, these are some of these vineyards I, I'm still getting to know every year. You learn something more about them and it's a shot in the dark. You know, it's intu- I, I, winemaking for me is a very intuitive process. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like if it tastes good, it's good. If I think it tastes good, then it's good, you know. Um, so I, it, it's not a technical way we do it. It's like I think that tastes good, therefore I'm going to do it like this. I think it would taste better if I did this, therefore I'll do it. I'll try this this year. A lot of experimentation goes on, mm. you know. That seems to be working. So far, so good. And was it always a decision that you would actually bottle up single vineyard wines? I think so. From early on, yeah, I've always been interested, especially you know, with the, the, the experience that I've had in wineries and, and, and the wines I've liked to drink. I've always been fascinated by the idea of terroir. Um, I remember when I got to California, I really didn't even know the term existed. Right. I, I knew it was a word, but I never really knew what it meant until it sort of started getting explained to me by someone like Paul Draper. Sure. And by, you know, Rachel was great at it by showing me all these wines of provenance from these different sites. And you really start to get like, oh, okay, that tastes different than that one. You know, that's hell of a lot different. That's a much better one, you know. So, the, and you can become quite obsessed with it. Sure. Um, I'm not. I'm not a particularly obsessive person when it comes to that. But I love that idea. And I, I still do think to this day that 
um, more interest. I'm not saying better wines, but definitely more interesting wines and fascinating wines for me come from single vineyards and yeah. single sites. Yeah, there's something that's more expressive. You know, coming from a, I always like and coming from a literature side of things, I always look at vineyards as something like a novel, mm-hmm. and and that each like each author has a voice, and you can sort of read a you can read a book by some novelist and go, okay, I know that's a Raymond Carver short story. Sure, I have to read three lines of that. I can tell Raymond Carver wrote that. Sure. I think a vineyard's that same thing. You can drink that and you go, okay, I know that's Warner Vineyard. Sure. That's a 2011 Warner Vineyard, but I know that's that Warner Vineyard. And and that vineyard can have a voice through its whole life as well. But each story has similar nuances. kind of nuances, yeah. but is is unique it's in itself. Different to its, yeah, different to its vintage, and that's sure. its terroir, you know. And, sure. and that's why I see the role as a winemaker is really just like a editor i guess or a publisher you know you just sort of you're just corralling this a thing translator into, translator exactly you know some facilitating the idea of that vineyard into a bottle yeah but yet as that being that winemaker you can't help but have your imprint on it same as an editor would you know by adding subtracting to it like you know for me to add whole bunch is definitely it that's an impact on terroir by putting 100 percent whole bunch in a wine a vineyard wine being a, a, a city boy, yeah. uh, to a certain extent, um, you probably go out and, and are dining oh, and stuff like that. Is that is that part of your? Is that part of your kind of lifestyle? There, the, the, has it long been a kind of a, th- a thought thinking about how wine influences the context of food and and, and to me, wine is food. It's all part one and the same. You know? Yeah, now it is anywhere to see. I, I see you can't have one without the other. Sure. I mean, look, it's one, not, one it's of the things. It's in its own. Oh, it's food. It's life. You know, yeah. it's, it adds to it. I don't. I think wine tastes better with food. I think food tastes better with wine. You know, it's that sure. thing. To me, it's all the same. I don't separate the two. You know, I think they're both. To me, the wine is life. You know, and has that always influenced your your winemaking? Choice? Yeah, I've always wanted to make wines that are food friendly taste. and yeah, wines that are approachable and food friendly and you know, balanced wines. I think are more food friendly. So yeah. I've always had that in mind that these are wines. You know, my my whole the the. the I also attribute a lot of the success of Jam Sheet has been to the fact that I do live in the city. You know, I mean, I right up until '98 when I started exporting and selling wine in Sydney, I sold 95 percent of my production within five kilometres of my house in Carlton. Yeah, you know, and these were restaurants that I knew every sommelier by name. Yeah, I would sell them the wine. They would call me, order the wine. I would deliver the wine. So yeah. I would make it, deliver it, and I'd be eating at their establishment. So yeah. I'd be in their faces. I'd be showing that I love their food and, and I would sell at the wine, at the restaurants that I like to eat at. But also yeah. understanding their cuisine and, and, and the yeah. particular ambiance of their venue yeah. to kind of go, yeah, I know the jam sheet wines fit in yeah. here. And having a, you know, engaging a sommelier in a conversation and sort of, you know, you just basically go in there and you spend a lot of money and, you know, you have a, order a knife bottle and engage a sommelier in a chat and show a bit of interest in wine and it's a, it's a great way to sell wine. It's a bloody good fun way to market wine and sell it. I was listening to uh, an older episode of uh, Levy Dalton's podcast. I'll yeah. drink to that. Um, he oh, actually it wasn't too long ago. He um, interviewed Oz Clark, the mm. uh, the English oh, no, well, sort of, yeah, writer and TV mm. personality about wine. And he talked about an experience he had talking with uh, at some kind of trade show. I think it was um, an Australian winemaker or Australian just came up to him and said, "What do you guys like?" And you know, what what you know, what what do you what, what do you want to pay for it kind of thing. And then they went away and came back the next year and exactly gave them what they wanted. Hmm. And I think that's a cool idea. But uh, what I prefer is the kind of what you're talking about, hmm. where you're actually just spending time with with the sommeliers and with buyers and with hmm. merchants. And kind of finding like-minded people and finding ways to, yeah, cool. Well, that's kind of what I'm going for in this wine. That's what you're going for in the food kind of thing. Yeah, so, yeah, symbiosis and simpatico. You know, my my winemaking company is called Simpatico Wine Services for, <laughs> for that. You know, I mean, it wasn't. I, I mean, I, I 
I actually think I'm quite lucky that I I don't think I could have done well you probably could have done jam sheet elsewhere but I was really lucky that Melbourne existed as a really vibrant dynamic food and dining scene mm. because you know some of the like the wines that uh, I remember showing some of the 06 wines to people that were pretty high in the whole bunch count and pretty wacky pretty green like 06 wasn't a ripe year so you know 06 was the year I started to have a lot of success with with jam sheet and um it was a high amount of whole bunch and a few other ones and I remember some of the looks on some of these sommeliers faces like are you kidding me? What is this green, weedy, mucky, crazy shit you're trying to push on us? You know, but that yeah, that, you know, then you'd find these guys who were like, "That's awesome. That's the kind of wine I want to. I've been trying to find, but haven't been able to find locally." You know, it's exactly. just sort of, and and it just grew like that. You know, so it's sort of. I, and, I think and I was like interesting that, that in the last sort of ten years or so, how much oh, it's been, it's great. changed, yeah. and how the, how many more producers locally there are, and like young people mm-hmm. that are kind of trying to capture that style of wine as well. Exactly, people who just want to show some difference, you know, celebrate the difference on a wine list, and and highlight the the how diverse an experience you can have, even within say Victoria. You know, you can have such a diverse wine experience even within Victoria. Mm. And you can highlight that in a list so well, you know, and these are the things that I wanted to show. So, so yeah, it was, was good. Life. It's good for me to be in Melbourne, yeah. Tell me about Jam Sheet. Oh, the actual name? Yeah. Story. Um, and yeah, and, and why you chose it. Uh, so what, it, it, it's an old literary reference, of course. You know, it comes back from my literary days. Um, I, I initially came across it in the Ruba Avamakayan, which is the old uh, Sufi poem written by... I'm okay, I'm but translated by Edward Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm. Um, and in it, he mentioned this King Jamsheet, who was, uh, he has a name that's 21 names long, but Jamsheet is the, the main one, King Jamsheet. And he can see his kingdom in a cup of wine. Right. He's, so he's a complete souse. He's a drunk. He's a very Noah-like figure that he planted the first vineyard, had a multitude of wives, lived to a long, ripe old age, and was a complete alcoholic. Well-preserved. Well-preserved, yeah. But souse. So, and then sort of doing a little bit more research, came across this book, The Epic of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh, which is one of the first ever written histories. And in it, there was this fantastic story, which sort of, you know, um, went on in depth about Jamshid. And there's a story about how he would uh, he would have some table grapes. Wine wasn't invented at this stage. Um, right. So he would harvest his table grapes and store them in amphora, I guess, or in some vessels for wintering, overwintering the fruit. So he'd yep. eat them during winter. Yep. They would spontaneously ferment. Um, he would, not knowing the process of fermentation, he would label them as poison and set them aside in the cellar. Uh, he kept the harem of 500 women, uh, one of whom, despairing of terrible migraines, decided that she would try and kill herself by drinking the so-called poison. Reported the king next day she was cured of a migraine, probably had the world's first hangover as well. But And the king said, well, let's like, make more of this poison. So in, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, Annals of Gilgamesh, that is the invention of wine. And I thought, <laughs> oh, that's a cool story, you know, it's a great. And I read that years ago. And um, and then when I sort of started Jam Sheet, I was looking around. This is 03. I had my first... 02 is when I sort of started thinking about releasing wines, and 03 was the first vintage. And that, at that time, Australia was awash with critter wines. You know, it was really... And I saw a lot of critter... Like, I, I saw the worst side of Australian export in the States in 02 and 03. You know, it was all cockatoo, da-da-da, galah, rabbit. The one that I didn't like you. when I started in, in liquor retail in 04 was Little Penguin. Oh, it's just all... I mean, you name an animal, it was on a bloody wine yeah. label and somewhere yeah. in the US, you know. Yeah. So, basically, I was thinking anything but that, you know. So, and, and I wanted, you know, I, I perceive wine to be... And one of the things I do love about the wine industry is it's such a worldwide connected industry, you know. So, I thought, well, it can be... You can call... You can have an Australian wine and not give it an Australiana name. So... Mm. 
to me, Jam Sheed just was quite evocative of the story of wine, less so than the story of Australia or of me, you know. So mm-hmm. I was never going to name anything eponymous because Gary Mills doesn't sound really cool on label. Sounds really shit. No one's ever going to buy it, you know. They call it Gazza. You'd sell heaps. Gazadax wines. So there was a thought of that. Yeah, one day, <laughs> have a Gazza wine. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also I like the idea of you in a in a winery with all your little pots of poison and mm. then individually bottling each pot. Yeah, well, that's it. So there's there you your go. pot of poison from Warner Vineyard. There's your pot of poison yeah. from uh, from the Grampians. <laughs> yeah, it's all. It, it's quite an it's quite an evocative name, isn't it? And it's worked quite well, you know. I mean, I think it's. Um, I'm really big amongst the Pakistani taxi driver fraternity in Melbourne. I reckon. Yeah, really. They're the only guys I know who are called Jam Sheets. So, yeah. Yeah. And the Zoroastrians. Zoroastrians, I've been buying wine, so. There you go. Yeah. And, uh, and so now, so these days you're selling a bit domestically, you're exporting a bit. Yeah, it's gone, export's gone mad. Um, I've gone from not exporting a single bottle in 2008 to now having 16 markets worldwide. Far out. And exporting close to half the production. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know that there's always a lot of excitement when there's a new release, and I think you've got mm. some new releases coming up. Are, are you sort of doing any activities around upcoming releases? Uh, probably. I'm a lazy sod at heart. I mean, I'm sort of. <laughs> um, I will do. I, I keep talking to Babenum. I've got a, my distributors and, and Kath. We want to do a dinner where I, I start showing all the wine because I've still got library stock all the way back to the first release. Yeah, cool. Um, so I want to do a dinner somewhere and a tasting somewhere that shows one of everything from each year you know yeah. I sort of put that up because I make 14 different SKUs you know, 14 sure, different cool. wines now so a lot of wines to go tasting oh yeah. yeah and the next actually the next thing I'm doing is um, looking at getting my own winery so that's the next on the agenda <laughs> <laughs> and it better be in, most likely in the Yarra Valley uh, what's this space we might have some good news soon I hope so. oh. oh it's bloody you don't do anything too cheap these days so. <laughs> there's no such thing as a cheap winery so. well that's exciting well yeah. I know that um, I'm pretty sure that my uh, my supporter of the podcast partner a Different Drop have yeah, some of the wines so, yeah, um, so cars, if you're yeah. keen to get some of them but definitely if you're in Melbourne and Sydney in particular you should be able to find some jam sheet wines just do some research you know, get in, get in touch up. with Gary um, yeah. but thank you very much for making some time time today mm. to be on the podcast thank it, you it's someone i've wanted to have on for a long time yeah oh, thanks james um, thanks for and, the opportunity and obviously uh, i'd love to have you on a, a let's taste episode yeah let's get a video i promise i'll show for that one so, yeah. <laughs> no, no i want i want the real gas <laughs> right, i'll keep you on the beard then yeah <laughs> but uh but thanks very much and i look forward to trying some jam sheet wine lovely thanks james thanks everyone and thanks again to Gary Mills for joining me on this week's episode of The Vincast. Uh, make sure you're following him on Instagram and Twitter. He is at Jamsheed Wines. But if you put Jamsheed into Google, you'll find his website and find lots of different ways you can get in contact with him to uh, thank him for being on the podcast. Uh, make sure you're also going to differentdrop.com and you'll be able to find some Jamsheed Wines there. So you can also thank him by buying some of the wines. You can follow myself, James Gersbrook, a.k.a. Intrepid Wino, on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find the Twitter for the podcast itself at The Vincast. If you go to facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino, you'll find the Facebook page. And Intrepid Wino, one word, is what you need to put into YouTube to find my YouTube channel, which is where I've got uh, a few videos already, and I'm going to be putting more up of um, some video tastings, including the uh, live streaming Let's Taste video on the 27th of July at 6 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time with James Dawson. 
you can subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher, uh, iTunes, Player FM, a uh, whole range of ones. But if you do subscribe to the podcast, it means that you can actually get the episode as soon as it goes live and you can download it and listen to it wherever you may want to. If you do subscribe to the podcast on any of those platforms, please do whatever, please do whatever you can to share the podcast, leave it a rating and a review. Uh, it's really great to hear from people. I love getting feedback. Uh, I really want to hear from you, who you might want to hear on the podcast what you might want to hear about uh, you can get in contact with me a whole different um, number of ways uh, including on email you can uh, contact me at the vincast at gmail.com my question for this week uh, hashtag wino asks is what's the best american and i mean like united states what's the best american wine that you've ever tasted let me know in the various ways you can get in contact with me uh, i hope you enjoyed the episode I will see you next time. Bye.